Story 9 of Battles of the Stars in Space, Edward Short Sci-Fi, Volume 3. Thunder Patrol by H. Beam Piper and John J. Maguire, Part 2. This time, however, it did not thicken into blackness. It became luminous, brightening to a dazzle and dimming again to a coloured mist, and then it cleared, while Benson stood at Way's pistol as though on a target range. He was facing a big desk at twenty feet, across a thick-piled blue rug. There was a man seated at the desk, a white-haired man with a moustache and a small beard, who wore a loose coat of some glossy plum-brown fabric and a vividly blue neckscarf. The pistol centred on the V-shaped blue under his chin. Deliberately, Benson squeezed, recovered from the recoil, aimed, fired, recovered, aimed, fired, five seconds, gone. The old man slumped across the desk, his arms extended. Better make a good job of it. Six, seven, eight seconds. He stepped forward to the edge of the desk, call out fifteen seconds, and put the muzzle to the top of the man's head, firing again and snapping on the safety. There had been something familiar about the guide's face, but it was too late to check on that now. There wasn't any face left, not even much head. A box on the desk caught Benson's eye. A cardboard box with an envelope stamped, Top Secret, for the guide only, taped to it. He hosted his pistol and caught that up, stuffing it into his pocket, in obedience to an instinct to grab anything that looked like intelligent matter while in the enemy's country. Then he stepped back to the spot where the field had deposited him. He had ten seconds to spare. Somebody was banging on a door when the blue mist began to gather around him. He was crouching, the spherical plastic object in his right hand, his thumb over the button, when the field collapsed. Sure enough, right in front of him, so close that he could smell the very heat of it, was the big tank with a red star on its turret. Cursed the sextet of sanctimonious double-crosses, eight thousand miles and fifty years away in space-time. Machine guns had stopped, probably because they couldn't be depressed far enough to aim at him now. That was a notorious fault of some of the newer pan-Soviet tanks, and he rocked back on his heels pressed the button and heaved, closing his eyes. As the thing left his fingers, he knew that he had thrown too hard. His muscles, accustomed to the heavier, cast-iron grenades of his experience, betrayed him. For a moment, he was closer to despair than at any other time in the whole phantasmagoric adventure. Then he was hit, with physical violence, by a wave of almost solid heat. It didn't smell like the heat of the tank's engines. It smelled like molten metal, with undertones of burned flesh. Immediately there was a multiple explosion that threw him flat as the tank's ammunition went up. There were no screams. It was too fast for that. He opened his eyes. The turret and top armor of the tank had vanished. The two massive treads had been toppled over, one to either side. The body had collapsed between them, and it was running sticky trickles of molten metal. He blinked, rubbed his eyes on the back of his hand, and looked again. Of all the many blasted and burned-out tanks, Soviet and UN, that he had seen, this was the most completely wrecked thing in his experience, and had done that with one grenade. At that moment, there was a sudden rushing overhead, and an instant later the barrage began falling beyond the crest of the ridge. He looked at his watch, blinked, and looked again. That barrage was due at 0550. According to the watch, it was 0726. He was sure that ten minutes ago, when he had looked at it, up there at the head of the ravine, it had been twenty minutes to six. He puzzled about that for a moment, and decided 
that he must have caught the stem on something and pulled it out, and then twisted it a little, setting the watch ahead, and somehow the stem had gotten pushed back in, starting it at the new setting. That was a pretty far-fetched explanation, but it was the only one he could think of. But about this tank now, he was positive that he could remember throwing a grenade, yet he'd used his last grenade back there at the supply dump. He saw his carbine and picked it up, the silly blackout it had for a second. There he must have dropped it. Action was open, empty magazine on the ground where he'd dropped it. He wondered stupidly if one of his bullets couldn't have gone down the muzzle of the tank's gun and exploded the shell in the chamber. Oh, the hell with it. The tank might have been hit by a premature shot from the barrage which was raging against the far slope of the ridge. He reset his watch by guess and looked down the valley. The big attack would be starting any minute now, and there will be fleeing commies coming up the valley ahead of the UN advance. He'd better get himself placed before they started coming in on him. He stopped thinking about the mystery of the blown-up tank, a solution to which seemed to dance maddeningly just out of his mental reach, and found himself a place among the rocks to wait. Down the valley he could hear everything from pistols to mortars going off, and shouting in three or four racial intonations. After a while... Fugitive communists began coming, many of them without their equipment, stumbling in their haste and looking back over their shoulders. Most of them avoided the mouth of the ravine and hurried by to the left or right, but one little clump, eight or ten, came up the dry steam bed and stopped a hundred and fifty yards from his hiding place to make a stand. They were Hindus, with outsized helmets over their turbans. Two of them came ahead, carrying a machine gun, followed by a third with a flamethrower. The others retreated more slowly firing their rifles to delay pursuit. Cuddling the stock of his carbine to his cheek, he divided a ten-shot burst between the two machine-gunners. Then, as a matter of principle, he shot the man with a flamethrower. He had a dislike for flamethrowers. He killed every enemy he found with one. The others dropped their rifles and raised their hands, screaming, Hey, Joe! Hey, Joe! You no shoot! Me no shoot! A dozen men in UN battle dress came up and took them prisoner. Benson shouted to them and then rose and came down to join them. They were British, Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, advertising the fact by inconspicuous bits of tartan on their uniforms. The subaltern in command looked at him and nodded. Captain Benson, we are want to be on watch for your patrol, he said. Any of the rest of you lads get out. Benson shrugged. We split up after the attack. You may run into a couple of them. Some are locals and don't speak very good English. I've got to get back to division myself. What's the best way? Doing that way. You'll ever take a couple of our walking wounded. If you don't mind going slowly, I'll show you the way to advanced dressing station and then you can hitch a ride in an ambulance from there. Benson nodded. Off on the left, there was a flurry of small arms fire, ending in yells of, Hey Joe, hey Joe, the World War Four version of Kamerad. His company was a non-TO outfit. He came directly under division command, and he didn't have to bother reporting to any regimental or brigade commanders. He walked for an hour with half a dozen lightly wounded Scots, rode for another hour on a big cat truck, loaded with casualties of six regiments and four races, and finally reached Division Rear, where both the division and corps commanders took a time to compliment him on the part his last hunter patrol had played in the now complete breakthrough. His replacement, an equine-faced Spaniard with an imposing display of fruit salad, was there too. He solemnly took off the bracelet a refugee Caucasian goldsmith had made for his predecessor's predecessor, and gave it to the new commander what had formerly been Benson's butchers. As he had expected, there was also another medal waiting for him. A medical check at Task Force Centre got him a warning. His last patrol had brought him dangerously close to the edge of combat fatigue. Remembering the incidents of the tank and the unaccountably fast watch, and the mysterious box and envelope which he had found in his coat pocket, 
He agreed, saying nothing about the questions that were puzzling him. The psychological department was never too busy to refuse another case. They hunted patients gleefully, each psych shark seeking in every one proof of his own particular theory. It was with relief that he watched them fill out the red tag which gave him a priority on jet transports for home. Ankara to Alexandria, Alexandria to Dakar, Dakar to Bellum, Bellum to the shattered skyline of New York, the hurry-and-wait procedures at Fort Carlisle, and after the usual separation promotion, Major Fred Benson, late of Benson's Butchers, was back at teaching high school juniors the difference between H2O and H2SO4. There were two high schools in the city, McKinley High on the east side and Dwight Eisenhower High on the west. A few blocks from McKinley was the Tulip Tavern, where the Eisenhower teachers came in the late afternoons. The McKinley faculty crossed town to do their after-school drinking on the west side. When Benson entered the Tulip Tavern on a warm September afternoon, he found Bill Myers, the school psychologist, at one of the tables, smoking his pipe checking over a stack of aptitude test forms and drinking beer. He got a highball at the bar and carried it over to Bill's table. Oh, why, Fred? The psychologist separated the finished from the unfinished work with a sheet of yellow paper and crammed the whole business into his briefcase. I was hoping somebody would show up. Benson lit a cigarette, sipped his highball. He talked at random. School talk, the progress of the war, now in its twelfth year. Personal reminiscences of the Turkish theatre where Benson had served and the Madras beachhead where Myers had been. Bring home any souvenirs? Myers asked. Not much, a couple of pistols, a couple of knives, some pictures. I haven't gone around to unpacking them yet. I have a sixth of rye and some beer at my rooms. Let's go around and see what I did bring home. They finished their drinks and went out. What the devil's that? Myers said, pointing to the cardboard box with the envelope taped to it, when Benson lifted it out of the grey-green locker. Berladano, Benson said. I found it in the pocket of my coat. On my way back from my last hunter patrol, I've never told anybody about this before. That's the damnedest story I've ever heard, and in my racket you hear some honeys, Maya said when he had finished. He couldn't have picked that thing up in some other way, deliberately forgotten the circumstances, and fabricated this story about the tank and the grenade and the discrepancy in your watch subconsciously as an explanation. My subconscious is a better liar than that, Benson replied. It would have cobbled up some kind of a story that would stand up, business. Top secret for the guide only, Myers frowned. That isn't one of our marks, and if it were Soviet, it'd be trilingual, Russian, Hindi, and Chinese. Well, let's see what's in it. I want this thing cleared up. I've been having some of the nastiest dreams lately. Well, be careful. It might be booby-trapped, Myers said urgently. Don't worry, I will. He used a knife to slice the envelope open, without untaping it from the box, and exposed five sheets of typewritten onion-skin paper. There was no letterhead, no salutation or address line, just a mass of chemical formulae and a concise report on tests. It seemed to be a report on an improved syrup for carbonated soft drink. There were a few cryptic cautionary references to heightened physico-psychological effects. The box was opened with the same caution, but it proved as innocent of dangers as the envelope. It contained only a half-litre bottle, wax-sealed, containing a dark reddish-brown syrup. There's a lot of this stuff I don't dig, Benson said, tapping the sheets of onion skin. I don't even scratch the surface of this rigmarole about the guide. I'm going to get to work on this sample in the lab. School, though. Maybe we have something here. At 8.30 the next evening, after four and a half hours' work, he stopped 
to check what he had found out. The school's X-ray, an excellent one, had given him a complete picture of the molecular structure of the syrup. There were a couple of lung-chain molecules that he could only believe after two re-examinations and a careful check of the machine, but with the help of the notes he could deduce how they'd been put together. They would be the ingredient alpha and ingredient beta referred to in the notes. The components of the syrup were all simple and easily procurable with those two exceptions, as were the basic components from which these were made. The mechanical guinea pig demonstrated that the syrup contained nothing harmful to the human tissue. Of course, there were the warnings about heightened psychophysiological effects. He stuck a poison label on the bottle, lucked it up, and went home. The next day he and Bill Myers got a bottle of carbonated water and mixed themselves a couple of drinks of it. It was delicious, sweet, dry, tart, sour, all of these in alternating waves of pleasure. We have to do something, Bill, he said. We have something that's going to give our income tax experts headaches. You have, Myers corrected. Where do you start fitting me into it? We're a good team, Bill. I'm a chemist. And I don't know a thing about people. You're a psychologist. A real one. Not one of those night school boys. A juvenile psychologist, too. And what age group spends the most money in this country for soft drinks? Knowing the names of the syrup's ingredients and what their molecular structure was like was only the beginning. Gallon after gallon of the school board's chemicals went down the laboratory sink. Fred Benson and Bill Myers almost lived in the fourth floor lab. Once or twice, there were head-shaking warnings from the principal about the dangers of overwork. The watchman at all hours would hear the occasional twanging of Benson's guitar in the laboratory and know that he had come to a dead end on something and was trying to think. Football season came and went. Basketball season, the inevitable riot between McKinley and Eisenhower routers, the spring concerts. The term-end exams were only a month away when Benson and Myers finally did it, and stood solemnly, each with a beaker in either hand, and took out in the sips of the original, and the drink mixed from the syrup they made. A bit of difference, Fred, Myers said. We have it. Benson picked up the guitar and began plunking on it. Hey, Myers exclaimed. Have you been finding time to take lessons or nothing? I never heard you play as well as that. He decided to go into business in St. Louis. It was centrally located, and being behind more concentric circles of radar and counter-rocket defences, it was in better shape than any other city in the country, and most likely to stay that way. Getting started wasn't hard. The first banker who tasted the new drink named Every Flav, at Meyer's suggestion, didn't dig up the necessary money fast enough. Every Flav hit the market with a bang, and became an instant success. Soon the rainbow-tinted vending machines were everywhere dispensing the slender, slightly flattened bottles and devouring quarters voraciously. In spite of high taxes and the difficulties of doing business in a consumer's economy upon which a wartime economy had been superimposed, both Myers and Benson were rapidly becoming wealthy. But Gregarious Myers installed himself in a luxurious apartment in the city. Benson bought a large tract of land down the river toward Carondelet, and started building a home and landscaping the grounds. The dreams began bothering him again, now that the urgency of getting every flave ink started had eased. They were not dreams of the men he had killed in battle, or except a one about a huge hot-smelling tank with a red star in the turret about the war. Generally, they were about a strange, beautiful office room, in which a young man in uniform killed an older man in a plum-brown coat and a vivid blue neckscarf. Sometimes Benson identified himself with the killer, sometimes with the old man who was killed. 
He talked to Myers about these dreams, but beyond generalities about delayed effects of combat fatigue and vague advice to relax, the psychologist, now head of sales and promotion of every flavor ink, could give him no help. The war ended three years after the new company was launched. There was a momentary faltering of the economy, and then the work of reconstruction was crying hungrily for all the labor and capital that had been idled by the end of destruction and more. There was a new flood tide of prosperity, and every flave rode the crest. The estate at Carondelet was finished, a beautiful place, surrounded with gardens, fragrant with flowers, full of the songs of birds and soft music from concealed record players. It made him forget the ugliness of the war, and kept the dreams from returning so frequently. All the world ought to be like that, he thought, beautiful and quiet and peaceful. People surrounded with such beauty couldn't think about war. All the world could be like that. If only. The UN chose St. Louis for its new headquarters. Many of its officers had been moved there after the second and most destructive bombing of New York and when the city by the Mississippi began growing into a real-world capital, the flow of money into it almost squared overnight. Benson began to take an active part in politics in the New World Sovereignty Party. He did not, however, allow his political activities to distract him from the work of expanding the company to which he owed his wealth and position. There were always things to worry about. I don't know, Myers said to him one evening, as they sat over a bottle of rye in the psychologist's apartment. I could make almost as much money practicing as a psychiatrist these days. The whole world seems to be going pure, unadulterated nuts. An affair in Munich, for instance. Yes, Benson grimaced as he thought of the affair in Munich, a Wagnerian concert which had terminated in an insane orgy of mass suicide. Just a week after we started our free sample campaign in South Germany, too. He stopped short, downing his drink and coughing over it. Bill, you remember those sheets of onion skin in that envelope? Foundation of our fortunes. I wonder where you really did get that, Fred. His eyes widened in horror. That caution about heightened psychophysiological effects that we were never able to understand. Benson nodded grimly. I think of all the crazy cases of mass hysteria. That baseball game riot in Baltimore. The time everybody started tearing off each other's clothes in Milwaukee. The sex orgy in New Orleans. And the sharp uptrend in individual psychoneurotic and psychotic behavior. All in connection with music, too. And all after every flave got on the market. We'll have to stop it, pull every flavor off the market, Myers said. We can't be responsible for letting this go on. We can't stop, either. There's at least a two-month supply out in the hands of jabbers and distributors over whom we have no control. And we have all these contractual obligations to buy the entire output of the companies that make the syrup for us. If we stop buying, they can sell it in competition with us, as long as they don't infringe our trade name. And we can't prevent pirating. You know how easily we were able to duplicate that sample I pulled back from Turkey. Why our legal department's kept busy all the time, prosecuting unlicensed manufacturers as it is. We've got to do something, Fred. There was almost a whiff of hysteria in Maya's voice. We will. We'll start first thing tomorrow on a series of tests. Just do an eye, like the old times at Eisenhower High. First, we want to be sure that every flavor really is responsible. It'd be a hell of a thing if we started a public panic against our own product for nothing. And then... It took just two weeks. In a soundproof and guarded laboratory on Benson's Carondelet estate, to convict their delicious drink of responsibility for that Munich State Opera House horror, and everything else. Reports from confidential investigators in Munich confirmed this. It had, of course, been impossible to interview the 2,000 men and women who had turned the Opera House into a pyre for their own immolation. 
but none of the tiny minority who had kept their sanity and saved their lives had tasted every flave. It took another month to find out exactly how the stuff affected the human nervous system, and they almost wrecked their own nervous systems in the process. The real villain, they discovered, was the incredible-looking lung-chain compound alluded to in the original notes as ingredient data. Its principal physiological effect was to greatly increase the sensitivity of the oral nerves. Not only was the hearing range widened, after consuming 30 cc of beta, they could hear the sound of an ultrasonic dug whistle quite plainly, but the very quality of all audible sounds was curiously enhanced and altered. Myers, the psychologist, who was also well-grounded in neurology, explained how the chemical produced this effect. It meant about as much to Benson as some of the chemistry did to Bill Myers. There was also a secondary, purely psychological effect. Certain musical chords had definite effects on the emotions of the hearer and the subject, beside being directly influenced by the music, was rendered extremely open to verbal suggestions accompanied by a suitable musical background. Benson transferred the final results of this stage of the research to the black notebook and burned the scratch sheets. That's how it happened then, he said. The Munich thing was the result of all that Goethe-Demmering music. There was a band at the baseball park in Baltimore. The New Orleans orgy started while a local radio station was broadcasting some of this new dance music. Look, these tone clusters here have a definite sex excitation effect. The series of six chords which occur in some of the Wagnerian stuff affect a combined feeling of godlike isolation and despair, and these consecutive fifths, a sense of danger, anger, combativeness. You know, we could work out a whole range of emotional stimuli to fit the effects of ingredient beta. We don't want to, Maya said. We want to work out a substitute for beta that will keep the flavor of the drink without the psychophysiological effects. Yeah, sure, I have some of the boys at the plant lab working on that. Gave them a lot of syrup without beta and told them to work out cheap additives to restore the regular every flavor taste. Told them it was an effort to find a cheap substitute from an expensive ingredient. But look, Bill, you and I both see, for instance, that a powerful worldwide supranational sovereignty is the only guarantee of world peace. If we could use something like this to help overcome antiquated verbal prejudices and nationalistic emotional attachments. No, Maya said. I won't ever consent to anything like that, Fred. Not even in a cause like world peace. Use a thing like this for good, almost holy cause now, and tomorrow we or those who would come after us will be using it to create a tyranny. You know what year this is, Bill? Why, 1984, Benson said. Yes. Remember that old political novel of Orwell's, written about 40 years ago? Well, that's a picture of the kind of world you'd have, eventually, no matter what kind of world you started out to make. Fred, don't ever think of using this stuff for a purpose like that. If you try it, I'll fight you with every resource I have. There was a fanatical, almost murderous look in Bill Meyer's eyes. Benson put the notebook in his pocket, then laughed and threw up his hands. Hey, Joe, hey, Joe, he cried. You're right, of course, Bill. We can't even trust the UN with a thing like this. It makes the H-bomb look like a stone hatchet. Well, I'll call Grant at the plant lab and see how his boys are coming along with a substitute. As soon as we get it, we can put out a confidential letter to all our distributors and syrup manufacturers. He walked alone in the garden at Carondelet, watching the colour fade out of the sky and the twilight seep in among the clipped yews. All the world could be like this garden, a place of peace and beauty and quiet. If only. All the world would be a beautiful and peaceful garden in his own lifetime. He had the means of making it so. Three weeks later, he murdered his friend and partner Bill Myers. It was a suicide. 
Nobody but Fred Benson knew that he had taken 50 cc of pure ingredient beta in a couple of cocktails while listening to the queer phonograph record that he had played half an hour before blowing his brains out. The decision had cost Benson a battle with his conscience, from which he had emerged the sole survivor. The conscience was buried, along with Bill Myers, and all that remained was a purpose. Every flave stayed in the market unaltered. The night before the national election, the World Sovereignty Party distributed thousands of gallons of every flave. Her speakers on every radio and television network were backgrounded by soft music. The next day, when the vote was counted, it was found that the American nationalists had carried a few backwards precincts in the Rockies and the Southern Appalachians in one county in Alaska where there had been no distribution of every flave. The dreams came back more often now that Bill Myers was gone. Benson was only beginning to realize what a large fact in his life the companionship of the young psychologist had been. While a world of peace and beauty was an omelet worth the breaking of many eggs. He purchased another great tract of land near the city and donated it to the UN for their new headquarters buildings. The same architects and landscapists who had created the estate of Carondelet were put to work on it. In the middle of what was to become World City, they erected a small home for Fred Benson. Benson was often invited to address the delegates to the UN. Always, there was soft, piped-in music behind his words. He saw to it that every flave was available free to all UN personnel. The Senate of the United States elected him as perpetual U.S. delegate-in-chief to the U.N. Not long after, the Security Council elected him their perpetual chairman. In keeping with his new dignities, and to ameliorate his youthful appearance, he grew a moustache and eventually a small beard. The black notebook in which he kept the records of his experiments was always with him. Page after page was filled with notes. Experiments in sonics, like the one which had produced the ultrasonic stun gun, which rendered lethal weapons unnecessary for police and defense purposes, are the new musical combinations with which he was able to play upon every emotion and instinct. But he still dreamed, the same recurring dream of the young soldier and the old man in the office. By now he was consistently identifying himself with the latter. He took to carrying one of the thick bowed stun pistols always now. Alone he practiced constantly with it, drawing, breaking soap bubbles with the concentrated sound waves projected. It was silly, perhaps, but it helped him in his dreams. Now the old man with whom he identified himself would draw a stun pistol, occasionally, to defend himself. The years drained one by one through the hourglass of time. Year after year the world grew more peaceful, more beautiful. There were no more incidents like the mass suicide of Munich, or the mass perversions of New Orleans. The playing and even the composing of music was strictly controlled. No dangerous notes or chords could be played in a world drenched with ingredient beta. Steadily the idea grew that peace and beauty were supremely good, that violence and ugliness were supremely evil. Even competitive sports which simulated violence, even children born ugly and misshapen. He finished the breakfast which he prepared for himself. He trusted no food that another had touched, and knotted the vivid blue scarf about his neck before slipping into the loose coat of glossy plum brown, had checked the stun pistol, and pocketed the black notebook, its plastic leather cover glossy from long use. He stood in front of the mirror, brushing his beard, now snow white. Two years now, and he would be eighty. Had he been anyone but the guide, he would have long ago retired to the absolute peace and repose of one of the elders' havens. Peace and repose, however, were not for the guide. 
It would take another twenty years to finish his task of remaking the world, and he would need every day of it that his medical staff could borrow or steal from him. He made an eye-baffling practice draw with the stun pistol, and hosted it, and started down the spiral stairway to the office below. There was the usual mass of papers on his desk. A corps of secretaries had screened out everything but what required his own personal and immediate attention, but the business of guiding a world could only be reduced to a certain point. On top was the digest of the world's news for the past twenty-four hours, and below that was the agenda of the afternoon's meeting at the council. He laid both in front of him, reading over the former, and occasionally making a note on the latter. Once his glance strayed to the cardboard box in front of him, with the envelope taped to it, the latest improvement, and the every flavour syrup, with a report from all his own chemists, all conditioned to obedience, loyalty, and secrecy, if they thought he was going to try that damn stuff on himself. There was a sudden gleam of light in the middle of the room, in front of his desk. No, a mist, through which a blue light seemed to shine. The stun pistol was in his hand, his instinctive reaction to anything unusual, and pointed into the shining mist when it vanished, and a man appeared in front of him a man in the baggy green combat uniform that he himself had worn fifty years before, a man with a heavy automatic pistol in his hand. The gun was pointed directly at him. The guide aimed quickly and pressed the trigger of the ultrasonic stunner. The pistol dropped soundlessly in a thick-piled rug. The man in uniform slumped in an inert heap. The guide sprang to his feet and rounded the desk, crossing to and bending over the intruder. Why, this was the dream that had plagued him through the years, but it was ending differently. The young man, his face, was startlingly familiar somehow. It was not killing the old man. It was years of practice with the stun pistol. He stooped and picked the automatic up. The young man was unconscious, and the guide had his pistol now. He slipped the automatic into his pocket and straightened beside his inert, would-be slayer. A shimmering globe of blue mist appeared around them, brightened to a dazzle, dimmed again to a coloured mist before it vanished and when it cleared away, he was standing beside the man in uniform, in the sandy bed of a dry stream at the mouth of a little ravine, and directly in front of him, looming above him, was a thing that had not been seen in the world for close to half a century, a big, hot-smelling tank with a red star on its turret. He might have screamed, the din of its treads and engines Deafened him, and in panic he turned and ran, his old legs racing, his old heart pumping madly. The noise of the tank increased as machine guns joined the uproar. He felt the first bullet strike him just above the hips, no pain, just a tremendous impact. He might have felt the second bullet, too, as the ground tilted and rushed up at his face. Then he was diving into a tunnel of blackness that had no end. Captain Fred Benson of Benson's Butchers had been jerked back into consciousness, and the field began to build around him. He was struggling to rise fumbling the grenade out of his pocket when it collapsed. Sure enough, right in front of him, so close that he could smell the very heat of it, was the big tank with the red star on its turret. He cursed the sextet of sanctimonious double-crosses eight thousand miles and fifty years away in space-time. The machine guns had stopped, probably because they couldn't be depressed far enough to aim at him now. That was a notorious fault of some of the newer pan-Soviet tanks. He had the bomb out of his pocket, and the machine-guns began firing again, this time at something on his left. Wondering what had created the diversion, he rocked back on his heels, pressed the button and heaved, closing his eyes. As the thing left his fingers, he knew that he had thrown too hard. His muscles, accustomed to the heavier cast-iron grenades, had betrayed him. 
For a moment he was closer to despair than at any other time in the whole phantasmagoric adventure. Then he was hit with physical force by a wave of almost solid heat. It didn't smell like the heat of the tank's engines. It smelled like molten metal with undertones of burned flesh. Immediately there was a multiple explosion that threw him flat as the tank's ammunition went up. There were no screams. It was too fast for that. He opened his eyes. The turret and top armor of the tank had vanished. The two massive treads had been toppled over, one to either side. The body had collapsed between them. It was running sticky trickles of molten metal. He blinked, rubbed his eyes in the back of his hand and looked again. Of all the many blasted and burned out tanks, Soviet and Yuan that he had seen, this was the most completely wrecked thing in his experience. They'd done that with one grenade. Remembering the curious manner in which at the last the tank had begun firing at something to the side, he looked around to see the crumpled body in the pale violet-gray trousers and the plum-brown coat. Finding his carbine and reloading it, he went over to the dead man, turning the body over. It was an old man with a white moustache and a small white beard. Why, if the moustache was smaller and there were no beard, it would pass for Benson's own father, who had died in 1962. The clothes weren't Turkish or Armenian or Persian or anything one would expect in this country. The old man had a pistol in his coat pocket and Benson pulled it out and looked at it, then did a double take and grabbed for his own holster to find it empty. The pistol was his own 9.5 Colt automatic. He looked at the dead man with the white beard and the vivid blue neck scarf, and he was sure that he had never seen him before. It had that pistol when he'd come down the ravine. There was another pistol under the dead man's coat in a shoulder holster, a queer thing with a thick round barrel, like an old percussion pepper box, and a diaphragm instead of a muzzle, probably projected ultrasonic waves. He holstered his own coat and pocketed the unknown weapon. There was a black plaster-leather-bound notebook. It was full of notes, chemical formulae, yes, and some stuff on sonics. That tied in with a queer pistol. He pocketed that. He looked both over when he had time and privacy, two scarce commodities in the army. At that moment there was a sudden rushing overhead, and an instant later the barrage began falling beyond the crest of the ridge. He looked at his watch, blinked and looked again. That barrage was done at 05.50. According to his watch it was 07.26. That was another mystery, to go the question of who the dead man was, where it had come from, and how he'd gotten hold of Benson's pistol. Yes, and how that tank had gotten blown up. Benson was sure he'd used his last grenade back at the supply dump. The hell with it. He'd worry about all that later and there'd be fleeing commies coming up the valley ahead of the UN advance. He'd better get himself placed before they started coming in on him. He stopped thinking about the multiple mystery, a solution to which seemed to dance maddeningly just out of his mental reach and found himself in a place among the rocks to wait. And while he waited, he looked over the plaster-leather-bound notebook. In civil life, he'd been a high school chemistry teacher, but the stuff in this book was utterly new to him. Some of it he could understand readily enough. The rest of it he could dig out for himself, Stuff about some kind of carbonated soft drink, and about a couple of unbelievable-looking lung-chain molecules. After a while, fugitive communists began coming up the valley to make their stand. Benson put away their notebook, picked up his carbine, and cuddled the stock to his cheek. 